Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 29 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. We're also a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with over 150 radio shows and podcasts for working people just like you. Find out more about the network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. And before we get started, we always like to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, its affiliate unions, our guest unions, or employers, not even their historian. Nobody but themselves. Their historian. Who, who has an historian? I mean, Labor does. I guess that's true. Labor does have historians, don't they? Um, Well, you know, now that we've got that over with, Shannon, I got a question for you. You like the true crime shows? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people in our day and age really got addicted to true crime shows, especially during the pandemic when we're trying to figure out what to watch. I've always been into true crime. I don't know why, but it fascinates me. And I know it kind of scares my husband a little bit because I tend to watch Snapped a lot. And that has to do with, you know, a lot of women going a little snappy crazy. And so he's always like, you know, worried at night, keeping one eye open. Well, that's that's how you keep him in line. So actually, I think it's probably (laughs) good strategy. But you may not know it. We had a little true crime drama right here in Southwest Washington in the early 1900s. See, the bodies of sailors started showing up in the canals around Aberdeen, Washington. And this guy, Billy Goal, was arrested for the crime. Some have called him the ghoul of Grays Harbor, one of America's first serial killers. That's that's kind of creepy. But what does that have to do with us, Harold? Sure, it happened in Southwest Washington, but we're a labor show focused on working people issues. Well, here's something else you might not know. May is Labor History Month. And even though this episode is going to drop the first weekend in June, we're recording in May. Sorry about that, folks. I know we haven't had a show in a while. I've been really busy. I'm going to say it still counts. (laughs) See, the point is Billy Gold's story, according to Dr. Aaron Going's book, The Port of Missing Men, is a labor history story. But don't take my word for it. We've got Aaron right here with us on the show. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my book, Port of Missing Men, came out from the University of Washington Press pretty recently. And this fall, in only a few short months, it's going to come out as a paperback. They have it at uh, lots of bookstores, lots of museums, and from unionized sellers like Powell's down in Portland. Nice shout out to Powell's. You beat me to it, Brother Aaron. (laughs) And you know, the union there, ILWU Local 5, actually has a link that you can go through that will contribute to their fund for their union. So we're going to go ahead and put that into the show notes. But Aaron, who... Do people think Billy Goal was? Right. So Billy Goal was a German immigrant who was born in the late 19th century. Unfortunately, um, as he became more identified with 
murder and then serial killing, after his arrest in 1910, people began to call him the ghoul of Gray's Harbor and exclusively refer to him as Billy Ghoul. I often slip up with that. So many people see him as something of a caricature in earlier day Ted Bundy, something like that, and suggest that he was responsible for dozens or even hundreds of murders. Some have suggested that he is one of the world's worst serial killers. Um, And that's been the story going on for over a century. So this is the Billy Goal that people think they know. But you did a lot of research for this book, and there's a Billy Goal that people may not know. Right? Right. Uh, You know, everybody has different sides to their life, but very few are as misunderstood, as condescended, uh, as mocked as Billy was. Because during his life, just like the listeners of this podcast, Billy was a working class person. He was a migratory laborer, an immigrant who, like millions of other migrant workers, immigrant laborers, helped to build the industrial United States. He was a sailor and a union activist. I started doing research into Billy because it's difficult to grow up in Grace Harbor, as I did, without knowing something about what I came to call the myth of Billy Ghoul. And the more I dug, the more I found out, the more that it appeared that this Ghoul of Grace Harbor uh, stories allowed the early 20th century employers who ran politics, ran the media, ran everything, it allowed them to take an extremely violent place, a place where they were largely to blame for so much of the violence because of the working conditions and the living conditions. Um, They took the blame for all that violence, all that death, and put it on one person. They put it on Billy. They put it on him in newspapers. And once that story started, every crime that anyone could think of that happened between 1902 and 1910 was placed at the feet of Billy Gould, who was probably one of the best known labor activists in the Northwest in the early 20th century, which is the very reason why he had to be removed. So I just wanted to get into some some gory details here, being a true crime person. So how many people did he kill? How did he do it? What was he accused of? Did he do it? Was he just accused because he was this high-ranking union leader and they needed to take him out because he was causing too much good trouble? I mean, what are the deets? Don't, I know we don't want to ruin the story, but give us a little, little yummies. Oh, and I like that you uh, brought up good trouble because that is exactly what Billy did. And like so many of the people who cause good trouble, he ran afoul of the law. He ran afoul of those who have so much power in society. So the word accused, I suppose, is uh, a little bit difficult here. He was arrested and charged with two murders. He was uh, convicted of one murder. But from the moment he got arrested in early February 1910 until May 1910, when he was sent off to the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Uh, Almost every day during the three or four months, several newspapers ran 
articles saying that he was responsible for dozens or hundreds of murders, that every working class person, and it was almost exclusively working class people who died violently in Grays Harbor, uh, that he was to blame for all of them. Right. I mentioned early on, there was this epidemic of bodies floating in the canals out there. Right. So from about 1904 until 1908, there were dozens of working class people found floating there. Most of them um, were unsurprisingly in this center of the lumber economy. In fact, Grays Harbor was the largest lumber shipping port in the world at this time. Um, most of them were victims of what we might call euphemistically industrial accidents. They died on the job performing horrifically dangerous work to make profits for the employers, to make profits for their bosses, um, worked long hours in horribly dangerous conditions. Many others fell drunkenly into the water because Aberdeen and Hoquim, just like any well-known working class city in the American West, had dozens of saloons all along the waterfront, a waterfront that had no streetlights, had no guardrails. These saloons, as well as the boarding houses where they would stay, as well as the ships where they would stay because they couldn't afford housing when they were loading and unloading ships. Um, these are all, of course, along the water. And importantly, only a very few, only a small handful of these floaters, they were called the floater fleet. Uh, there were so many of them. Only a small number of them were declared to be likely murders by the coroners. So uh, when Billy Gold got arrested, he was blamed for all these bodies, right? right. Why? What had he done to put him in the crosshairs of the elites in this area? that's sort of at the center of this. Um, he had done a lot. He was, as I think I mentioned, the most prominent labor leader in the area. He was the head of the Sailors Union of the Pacific, which still exists. And those sailors are the group responsible for taking the cut lumber to market. So every ship that left, bringing hundreds of millions of board feet of lumber from Aberdeen and Hoquim, they were sailed by union sailors. And uh, Billy was the elected union leader for the sailors union for about eight years. So every ship that went out, he had to say who could and could not work on those ships. They had to be union workers and all hiring went through his hall. Well, on several occasions, he refused to provide union sailors two certain captains who had, in some cases, murdered sailors, uh, had beaten, whipped sailors, imprisoned sailors aboard ship. So if a captain got a notorious reputation, Billy put him on sort of a reverse blacklist. And this caused all kinds of problems. By 1908, 1909, near the end of Gould's time in Grays Harbor, Several shipping companies were threatening to move their business to the Puget Sound and only accept lumber from there. Uh, ah, so there was big money at stake, wasn't there? It's yeah. always about money and it's always the spouse. Just saying. Uh, well, yeah. So 
uh, of course, the geography and economics of Southwest Washington have changed quite a bit. And Aberdeen and Hoquiam are fairly small towns at this point. And Vancouver is the big city in Southwest Washington. But a hundred years ago, and this is clear if you drive around Aberdeen and Hoquiam, there are mansions all over the hills. Those mansions were homes of some of the world's wealthiest lumber mill owners, lumber manufacturers, boss loggers. And that money, of course, came from something. It came from the profits made from the logging camps and from the shingle mills and the sawmills. In 1906, that's the key year in Billy's union life, the entire Pacific coast of the United States, uh, the sailors and many longshoremen went on strike shortly after the San Francisco earthquake and fire because San Francisco had burned down and they needed lumber to rebuild the city. Well, employers unsurprisingly refused to grant wage increases to the sailors. So they went on strike and in Gray's Harbor, like any port, there's this choke point right at the point of transportation where the goods get put on the ships. And for several weeks, Billy Gull and the union he led shut down that port and the profit faucet just went dry. And not only did the workers shut it down, but as employers, as bosses, as police tried to break the strike, Billy met strike breakers, he met police, and he met employers with guns and with bats. So they fought back against employers, fought against strike breakers, and just refused to allow strike breakers and scabs to break the strike. And they won. The sailors won the strike, uh, earned their wage increase in a really powerful expression of labor solidarity on the Pacific coast. So it sounds like Billy was definitely a target of these powerful interests. And when the possibility came up to pin these murders on him. They framed him. Yes. And this, of course, is not terribly uncommon. There have been labor activists throughout American history and other activists, civil rights activists, indigenous rights activists, women activists have routinely been arrested for false charges and sentenced to jail and prison and even executed in the case of uh, Joe Hill and Sacco and Benzetti. So why is it important for working people today to know this story? Obviously, you're working to set the record straight about someone who's been painted as a murderer by history. But why is it important for working people to understand this history? I think that it's important for several reasons. Uh, on the one hand, Billy was only sentenced to prison and attacked in the press because of these coordinated activities by employers. In 1908 and 1909, a group of large lumber manufacturers and bankers in Aberdeen came together and formed a citizens committee. These same people would later attack the Wobblies, perhaps most of you know about them, they would form a vigilante committee. Well, they got rid of Billy in different ways. They raised about $10,000 and they hired labor spies 
um, not from the notorious Pinkerton agency. They hired them from the competitor agency, the field detective agency, quite possibly the most notorious company in the American West at that time. Hey, Pinkertons, didn't Amazon hire Pinkertons for security out in New York? Ah, yes. In fact, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, founded in the 19th century, is as notorious in American history as probably almost any group. And what they did and what they continued to do is offer services to companies to break unions. That's why they exist. 120 years ago, what they would do is they would go undercover, pose as workers or members of certain groups, and they would often incite those groups to violence, or they would just keep track of everything the group was doing and tell employers and tell the police what was going on. Employers have a long history of trying to eliminate union activists from their ranks. Um, one way they did that a hundred years ago was to get a labor spy from the Pinkerton or Thiel agency to infiltrate that organization, that union, and then report to the employer who would then ban everyone from employment, effectively starving any union member. And unfortunately, the Pinkertons persist to this day and hired today by one of the most infamous anti-union companies in the world, Amazon. But I'm sure that uh, there's no spying going on now, right? That's just something way back in ancient history. Oh, no spying. And oh my gosh, they don't spend millions and millions of dollars to avoid a union when they could have just used a fraction of that money and given it to their damn employees. Don't get me started, Pinkertons. Uh, if there's one thing that I think labor history can teach us, one of the things, the big things, and that I think helps us understand our own times today is that employers will do anything or almost anything to maintain unquestioned control over the workplace. It's their property and they will do anything to make sure that workers who they often see as children, who they often see as just dumb, have no power. And they will use anything. With Billy Goal, they used legal services, they used newspapers, they used the law. Today, they'll use these anti-union consultants who make millions and millions of dollars. And just as you said, that money could go to providing living wages or insurance. And this employer activism against workers is as responsible as anything, in my opinion, why the United States lags behind other wealthy countries in so many ways, tragically. So what happened to Billy Gold? Well, um, he was sentenced in 1910 to life in prison. He was separated at that point from his wife, who he'd been married to for several years, shipped off to Walla Walla, and he spent the rest of his life until 1927 behind bars. He died in 1927 in a prison hospital. He died alone about 17 years after being in prison. Aaron, where can people find out more about what you've uncovered about Billy Gold? How can they get this book? It's available 
from the University of Washington Press. It's available at the various online booksellers. I would recommend certainly going with Powell's or potentially a co-op bookstore like Orca Books and Olympia. They all have copies. Um, you can also get them at a number of museums in Southwest Washington. And in a few short months, the paperback will be coming out. This was a hardcover. It's $30. So I suspect the paperback will be at least somewhat more affordable. And while you're at it, I, uh, in 2019, wrote a book with Oregon State University Press called The Red Coast, Radicalism and Anti-Radicalism in Southwest Washington, which isn't so much a biography of one person, but instead something of a popular history of workers' movements and efforts by employers to stifle those movements. And where is that available? Similar kinds of places. Uh, Oregon State University Press, online booksellers. I've seen it at several bookstores, including Powell's the last time I was there. And then you can always find my website at my workplace just by searching for my name. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Aaron Goings, author of The Port of Missing Men and Red Coast. Thank you. It's a real honor and pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Aaron, so much for providing us some history of our little Southwest corner. Now stick with us, working people. We'll be right back. Hi, folks. This is Patrick Dixon from Labor History Today, brought to you by the D.C. Metro Labor Council and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about an exciting new resource. Labor History Today is now a member of the Labor Radio Network, a coalition of labor radio shows and podcasts from across the United States and Canada. All you need to do is go to laborradionetwork.org and you can listen to local programming from coast to coast, from Oregon to Texas to Missouri to Ontario to Michigan to Vermont to New Jersey. You can find an abundance of exciting original recordings. Whether you're looking for discussions of union news here at home or in the world, you'd like to hear workers podcasting about their experiences on the job, you're interested in labor history, or you'd like to learn more about new books on workers and workers' movements. It's all there. So that's laborradionetwork.org. You can follow us on Instagram at laborradionet. Look out for the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter. You've got no excuse for ever being bored again. Thanks for staying with us, working people. We're going to take a step back and look at labor history as a whole with another guest, Connor Casey, Chief Archivist and Director of the Labor Archive of Washington. Thanks so much for joining us, Connor. Thanks a lot for having me here today, Shannon and Harold. I appreciate it. So, Connor, what is the Labor Archive of Washington? Well, the Labor Archives is a community archives. It was founded by the labor movement at the University of Washington Libraries Special Collections at Seattle campus for the University of Washington. It was started around 2010 after a two-year fundraising campaign. Um, before we were talking about Kickstarter and crowdsourcing, they were already doing it. That's actually how the Harry Bridges Center for Labor Studies got their endowed chair as a memorial to the West Coast founding president of the Longshore Union, Harry Bridges. They decided to do a project to help preserve labor history that they knew was in crisis in the Northwest by founding the Labor Archives of Washington. Connor, thank you so much for visiting with us. And I know that you've been reaching out to a lot of our central labor councils around the state trying to make sure that our history is preserved all over Washington. But what do you mean by labor history being in crisis? 
Well, one of the things I think about a lot is we're used to thinking about the way that history is written by the victors, right? And so we know that oftentimes what we learn in school or what we learn in exhibits or documentaries is the story of the bosses, right? We know a lot about the captains of the industry, usually rich white dudes, who we're told are the ones who invented and did everything progressive that ever happened in society, right? Where does that leave the workers? Where does that leave workers of color? Where does that leave women? Where does that leave other, uh, you know, identified folks? I think one of the great things that people don't talk about is that this starts before history is written. It starts with the creation of archives. And so the exercise of power happens before that stuff even gets into an archive, whether it's seen as worthy of being included, whether that's history is seen as being important. One of the great honors of being in this position is having the community mandate to say our history is important. These stories of working people, we're the ones who built this country. We're the ones who keep the country running. Let's make sure that our stories are told alongside those of those captains of industry, because quite frankly, there's a problem in terms of really understanding the way the world works if all you ever see is from a top-down history. That's kind of what I mean. The other thing I mean is um, people or institutions with a lot of resources have the ability to keep and collect their own records. They have no doubt that their history is important. They're very used to thinking that they're important in society, right? They also have institutional resources to maintain those records and oftentimes training to do that. And on the tail end, the people within libraries or museums or special collections are knocking down their door because they think that their stories are important. Conversely, with working people's organizations, we're often not told that our stories are central to any narrative. We don't necessarily have the resources. So that usually means in the case of smaller local unions or labor councils or maybe even individual activists or officers, they don't have the ability to keep records in a fancy archive. They have to keep it in their own house. And so as a consequence, they don't necessarily have the ability to keep it above flood water, uh, save it from a fire, whatever. You know, I've never looked at archives and history the way that you just explained it. But I have noticed communities in our society who are screaming to have their history heard. I mean, we just had AAPI month. We have a Hispanic history. We have obviously our Black history and all of these marginalized communities who are fighting for their history because I didn't even know about Black Wall Street. I have a Bachelor of Science, which, you know, woohoo, I'm a college educated person. I had no clue about history, like extremely hard history. So I've never really thought about it this way. And I love how you explained it because I feel that we can't just have one group of people giving us our history. There is so much history and so many levels to history that need to be dug up and preserved. Yeah. But the flip side of that, Shannon, is this is all stuff that happened in the past, right? Why should people who are living in 2022 in Southwest Washington or wherever they happen to be listening to this show, why should they care about something that happened in, say, Aberdeen, Washington in 1910? What difference does that make to their lives? First of all, Sister Shannon was saying about uh, marginalized history. The thing is, all these months, you just alluded to uh, History Month, which is a common practice. It's great to center the history of uh, particular communities during the month, but I, I think about Black workers particularly who built this country from the very beginning without being compensated, and whose story is better told as central to American history than Black history, right? That's all about labor. It's all about free or unfree labor. 
to me, it's not a sidebar narrative. That's, that is the core of history to really understand from all these perspectives. There's a phrase that they often use in history called polyvocality. There are many voices that you get to hear from different perspectives. To me, I think about demystifying the present moment. I almost compare anthropology or history to come into a party where there are two groups of people that are arguing and you sort of have to figure out, having entered the door, what the deal is, right? Like, what just happened here? To me, I feel like history is really looking at the sources and understanding the context of the current moment because politics and people in power, it's really easy to lead people or manipulate people if you don't know anything about the context of what happened just before you. I feel like a lot of the trends that are still present that were particularly prevalent in the early part of the 20th century, stuff like casualized labor, extractive industries, precarious work, lack of health and safety protections. I mean, God. An Uber driver isn't that different than a lumberjack in a way, because you have seasonal casualized labor. The boss is saying, you're not really our employee. They're going to treat you like you're less than human. And the strategies are often the same, which is to organize, to realize that you're going to look your fellow worker in the eye and you're going to have to work together to try to make the situation better because you know the boss isn't going to do it. You know, it's interesting that you brought up that historical context of what's happening now the topic of the Pinkerton Detective Agency came up when we were talking to Aaron, and I think we saw the Pinkertons at the Amazon JFK 8 union vote. Yeah, you know what I think about is that I think sometimes the way history is taught is it's like it's settled history, right? Oh, well, back in this time, they used to attack people with violence. They would shoot strikers. There was terrible mining things. There was child labor. Could you imagine? Thank God used we're never going to gonna see that again. <laughs> right? Used to. Exactly, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it's it depends on who you're looking at, right? It's just sort of like the, the phrasing of like, women started working in World War II. Well, white middle-class women maybe started working then more, but Black women have always worked, right? And the same thing is, uh, you know, there's still children working in agricultural fields, right? It's a persistent issue. So I think about frame, who we're looking at and who we're talking about. So when we think about the past, the Pinkertons, my God, they would pull out guns and they would have uh, hired armed guards that would break strikes. Now they have closed door meetings. Now they have legislative mandates and the ability to intimidate workers that they have had for decades. And a Um, lot of money. A lot of money. The Pinkertons are wearing a suit and tie now. They don't have the guns, right? They have a briefcase and the ability to intimidate workers with all these other rhetorics. And I think one of the things that is really exciting right now is people are starting to see through whatever guise of the rhetoric is and realize maybe not quite having a direct connection to those pistol slinging uh, union busters of the past, but it's the same trend, right? Why do they want to break the unions? Because it allows workers to have workplace democracy and a voice on the job. And I think it's no coincidence that the dwindling of the labor movement over the last 40 years has coincided with the greatest wage inequity that we've seen since the Gilded Age, as well as basically the death or at least the peril of democracy. Labor unions usually result in a much more engaged populace and also redistribution of wealth and therefore a more democratic and equitable society. So I don't just see these things as like old newsreels. I see these closed door meetings at the Amazon warehouse that you're talking about as just one other guise of those Pinkertons. There's always been these people around trying to keep workers from organizing and trying to keep jobs not democratic on the ground. When it comes to Southwest Washington or Washington State in general, really, we do have a lot of labor history here in our region, right? I think Aaron mentioned something about a citizens committee attacking Wobblies. 
would this have been in Centralia or <laughs> there's so many options? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's what he was talking about. What, what happened in Centralia? Well, Centralia was a, it was an interesting moment in 1919, right in the aftermath of the end of World War I, the Great War, on Armistice Day. There was a group of people in Centralia um, named the Industrial Workers of the World, and they were an international union, and they had a different organizing model, which involved organizing women, immigrants, people of color, and they particularly were successful in organizing workers in extractive industries, especially in the Northwest, like timber and mining. So they had started organizing in Centralia, Washington, which is about halfway between Seattle and Portland. The year before, a bunch of people that were at a citizens preparedness or a Red Cross Day Parade had roughed up their office. This was very common. There was a lot of extra legal violence against the Wobblies on the part of citizen vigilantes. They basically kicked them out that previous year. And the Wobblies, that's a nickname for the IWW members, came back and started organizing again. They had a new office. They had a new landlord. They moved downtown into Centralia and started organizing again. And there were rumors percolating through the populace that they were going to be attacked. And they started to ask for help. They asked the mayor. They asked, uh, I don't remember if it was the sheriff or the chief of police. They said, hey, we're going to get hurt. What are you going to do about it? And they said, well, we can't really do much for you. And so they consulted with their lawyer, who ironically was a pacifist and said, are we allowed to protect ourselves with arms? Now, this incident is popularly known in mainstream history as the Centralia Massacre. Within the labor movement, we know it as the Centralia Tragedy. The funny thing I notice about American history is that anytime the people that you're attacking take up arms to self-defense, all of a sudden it's a massacre, right? So what happens is they are told that they can defend themselves. The, the lawyer tells them that they would prefer them not to shoot, but uh, these are rough and tumble people. Some of them are actual World War I veterans themselves, they're used to armed self-defense, but they didn't want to do that. They actually tried to go through the normal channels, right? We're always told to go through the normal channels. You ever notice that? <laughs> so it's not exactly clear who shot first, but the Wobblies had stationed sharpshooters and sentinels outside of their hall so that at the first threat of attack, they would defend themselves. There was a bunch of shooting. Uh, some people who were part of the American Legion, which is a veteran for foreign war type organization, were shot. Some veterans were shot on the wobbly side. Wesley Everest, who was a veteran of World War I, was in the hall, tried to prevent the attack. Uh, some folks got away out of the back of the hall. Some people were left shot in the street. Uh, it wasn't clear who shot first exactly. What we do know is that they tried to go through the proper channels to try to get protection. And they actually went to the trouble of printing out a broadside that we have in the labor archives that appealed to the citizens of Centralia to say, hey, we want help. If you believe in law and order, like you say, please don't attack us extra legally, okay? There's then basically the trial of the century in nearby Montesano. They felt like they couldn't get a fair trial in Centralia, so instead they chose an almost identical area nearby. <laughs> and they allowed witnesses and legionnaires to show up in uniforms and sit there in the courtroom, uh, potentially intimidating the witnesses. This is known by legal scholars as being basically a mistrial and a miscarriage of justice. And it resulted in the imprisonment of several of the members of the Industrial Workers of the World that were part of this incident, despite very fuzzy testimony. Um, eventually, all but one was pardoned, and one of them refused to be pardoned because he wanted to be exonerated. And it's extremely political still. There's still really big contests about the public history of the incident because a lot of locals like to think of the Wobblies as just a bunch of external troublemakers. But some members are actually veterans and local, you know, boys made bad or good or whatever. <laughs> Unpacking this 
I think really shows that this history, the stuff that we say, is it still matter? It's not innocuous. It's potent and it has deep roots and it has meaning and feeling around it today. Well, I just moved to Washington five years ago, but I've lived in the Pacific Northwest for 30 years. And I'd never heard of the Centralia massacre or tragedy until the past couple of years. So why don't stories like this get out into the broader world? Why isn't this being taught, say, in schools? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know about you all, but I didn't get any labor history until I went to college. No, It's not taught in the schools. And I grew up in San Francisco, which is, quote unquote, a union town. You know, Um, the only labor history I got was from family lore. You have to piece this together. And I think to understand the world that we're in, you kind of need pieces of this, right? Why are people so upset about this particular thing? Why did this happen? Why does this thing exist? I don't know. We're all educated people. We care. You know, we want to know about these stories. If we're looking for it and we can't find it, can you imagine people who are never even exposed to it? So it's not taught in schools. You're right. One of the things I would really like to do is to create primary source toolkits. What we have in the archives is primary sources, which is the stuff that was actually generated by the people that saw the thing, the thing from the thing, like minute books, letters. How can we generate a primary history toolkit that we can bring to the classrooms so people, you know, kids can learn about this stuff in the words of the people that were participants and really unpack some of this stuff? I think one entity that has done a great job of that is the Wing Luke Museum for Asian American Experience. They have these great classroom kits as well, and it allows people to understand the history of Asian Americans. I think working Americans, which includes Asian Americans, needs to have a similar unpacking for students to really engage with these ideas because otherwise it's mystified. I think the other thing is that's kind of an intentional omission, right? And my dad's an elementary school teacher. I understand why you have to teach to the test. That's how come we have to do the legwork, I think, to create curricula and toolkits and stuff and make it meaningful to actually get it out there because, you know, there are very well-intended teachers out there, but they are beleaguered and they have way too much work already. They're already working on nights and weekends. Um, I think we need to do better in terms of getting that stuff in the hands of those teachers. And um, remember, our educators are highly regulated on what they can and cannot teach. And the majority of that direction comes out of Texas. Yep. Just so you know. Mm-hmm. Texas school books. That's right. And so I think we need to think about how we can supplement this so that people, especially working people, know their own history. Um, one other thing I think is a factor is just cognitive dissonance. You know, you grow up being told a particular mode of history, of national narratives, right? And there's not much room for that in the idea that there might be state troops shooting down striking workers who are just exercising their constitutional or moral or human right. People don't know about Cripple Creek or all the different mine wars or the way they shot strikers for trying to organize a longshore union up and down the West Coast. And I think even if we hear these stories or get these tickles of it, your brain skirts away from it until you start to develop more of a critical consciousness that can latch onto that stuff and connect them to each other, which I think is you know, the great reason for having shows like this and participating as a broader movement, we're at a right moment now too, because people are thinking about labor organizing and more and more workers are thinking it's a viable option. We have always understood as a movement, I think, about education and, and worker education. I mean, heck, they had labor schools in Portland and San Francisco and Seattle and a bunch of other places. One thing I'm really happy about and proud about is that at least in Washington state, 
there's this whole coalition of labor education going on. It's the labor archives. You know, we have stuff like libraries and we have traveling exhibits and websites and things that people can learn about. But there's also the Bridges Center, which is more like targeted academic research. And they also have a whole labor studies minor that's emerging at the University of Washington, as well as the Washington State Labor Education and Research Center, which can do steward and labor trainings and whole workshops on labor history, as well as all this great stuff that's going through the Washington State Labor Council on all the different regional county labor councils. There's a lot of consciousness out there and a lot of really... I would say not as resourced as we all need, but isn't that always the case? (laughs) Work going on. And it's a great moment and it's a great place to be because I think that there's a lot of awareness and we're part of this cohort that we just have to continue to coordinate our work together and strike while the iron's hot. That leads us into the perfect segue. If people want to find out more about the Labor Archive of Washington, how can they do that? Where should they go? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. We have a website that's called, uh, believe it or not, this wasn't already registered, <laughs> laborarchives.org. What? And nobody yeah, had that? Nobody had it registered. Uh, thank God for Andrew Hedden at the Bridges Center, because he was the one who parked that domain and staked it out early. Um, there's that. And then we're also part of this national roundtable, because there's a bunch of labor archives nationwide. And people can find out more about that and see listings that we're increasingly adding to for the Society of American Archivists Labor Archives section, we have this whole listing of labor and labor-related collections in North America. Uh, At the laborarchives.org, you'll find an instance of that, as well as a listing of all of our collections and online exhibits with topics such as the Seattle General Strike, the SeaTac Seattle Minimum Wage History Campaign, how we got that 15 now as a first in SeaTac and Seattle. And we also have stuff relating to longshore history and Asian American uh, Pacific Islander workers, women workers. So we really invite people to come take a look at those online exhibits. Come see the records yourself. One kind of cool thing that the University of Washington Library Special Collections has added recently is you can make appointments and come use these collections in person. But if you can't make it all the way to Seattle, you can also do our virtual reading room. So you can actually book 45-minute back-to-back appointments and take a look at these collections yourself. Um, One thing we have is is guides or finding aids, we call them, to records that talk about the collections so you can actually see what's in there and the context behind them. You can look at those online. Oh, you know what? Kevin Lux, our secretary treasurer of our Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, just made an appointment to come up there and do some research for his project he's working on, which is save the Snake River Dams and the hydropower on the east side of the state. So he has taken advantage of a lot of that history, which will pertain to an existing issue that is happening today. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I have this tendency, I don't know, it's a habit, I guess, to think about related collections. And I think one thing that he might be interested in is possibly if he's doing a labor angle on it, we have IBEW 77's records. And as you know, it's a huge geographic local. So they work on the power lines and the dams. There might be stuff about workers' experience of that damming movement in there. Absolutely. So it is a great resource, not just to learn about our history, but maybe to take a look at history and how that would pertain in our decisions that we make today. Another thing we have is a lot of digitized collections. We also have a radio show and podcast segment you can see on our website that talks about these different historical incidents. We've been crawling and capturing labor websites, and we also have oral history interviews, particularly the most recent one about essential workers during the COVID pandemic. And if you want to learn about labor history too, a great resource, which is affiliated, but not one of ours, is um, the Pacific Northwest Civil Rights and Labor History website. 
it's a consortium of websites where you could learn about everything from the history you were talking about, Harold, about Southwest Washington, as well as the maritime history of this region. They have a lot of digitized oral history interviews, documentaries, different essays. And it's unusual for a public history website in that there's not just essays by a bunch of fancy historians, which are, you know, we love them and they're great, but students. It's original student research, undergraduate and graduate at the University of Washington are telling us our history. So it's a record of them learning about using these collections, but also teaching it. I use that for digitization, honestly. I'm not from here either. So I use that all the time to learn about my own history. We also have exhibits for loan. Imagine a printed out uh, banner, but it's instead of more of a, a portrait shaped like office paper exhibit with has maybe 12 panels. We have got six of those on different topics, such as Philippine ex-American labor organizing, Carlos Bolosan, who was an author, the Seattle general strike, the industrial workers of the world in the Pacific Northwest and the Everett massacre. And the other thing I wanted to mention is it's great for us archivists and librarians to have stuff in a catalog, but I don't think that's how most people find stuff. Usually we start out by Googling stuff, right? And so even though we know that's not supposed to be the authoritative source or whatever, in practice, what we started to do was just to seed Wikipedia articles or create articles that point to our collections. So if you are interested in the labor history topic around here, look that up. And there's usually a link under related collections straight to those finding aids. Well, Connor, I feel like we have just scratched the surface of what is a very big topic. But if people want to follow up with you and ask you questions, find out more information about these resources. How do they get a hold of you? Please take a look at laborarchives.org or just give me an email. I'm C-M as in Michael, C-A-S-E-Y, C Connor Michael Casey, C-M-K-C at uw.edu. Um, or, you know, if you uh, look on the website, there's also my number and feel free to text me. I, I, I respond pretty quickly. The other thing you might want to do is follow our social media. Uh, Labor Archives of Washington. It's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we do pretty regular postings. Connor, I really hope that you come back because your energy around history is infectious. I love the fact that you get so excited about history and make it fun for all of us. So thank you. Thank you all. You have a great show. I enjoy your energy too. And I'd love to come back whenever you'd want to have me. Well, thank you, Connor Casey, Chief Archivist and Director of the Labor Archives of Washington. And thank you, working people, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. And you know, listeners, you may be listening to this podcast right now, but in the future, it's going to be a part of labor history, too. And Connor is going to make sure that it is stored in the Washington State Labor Archives. And we want to make sure that this ends up being the highest quality piece of labor history. And that is why this podcast is recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. We want to be sure that we are making everything union strong, even our historical archives. Remember, working people, this is your show. We want to know what you want to hear on it. Email us at podcast at swwaclc.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SWWACLC. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And once you do that, pass the link on to your friends, family, and neighbors so that they can get updated on labor issues too. And while you're at it, give us five stars or put on the white cotton glove so you can open the 500-year-old book or whatever your podcast platform of choice gives you to let people know you like what we're doing here. 
One last thing, folks. Connor alluded to the fact that this thing we called history is not settled and done. History is still happening all around us. We're living in history right now. We're in historic times. Working people are realizing that they can stand up and they can stand together to make their lives at work and in their community better. So when you're reading the news about the latest Starbucks to vote in their union, the latest retail worker who files for a union, the latest healthcare workers who are going out on strike, remember, that's happening right now, but that is a part of history. And you want to play your role in history as people look back and see what happened in our era. So get involved. Find those people who are making a difference, who are making good trouble, like Shannon said earlier, and play your role. And let's also not forget to learn from history. It's good for us to know all pieces of history so that we can make sure we don't make the same mistakes that we've done in the past. And let's just say all of us here are guilty of something in the past. So let's learn from all of our experiences and make sure that we don't make those same mistakes. That is why history is important. That is why we need to continue to keep educating ourselves and moving forward as a progressive movement together. And not only that, it'll teach you how to spot a Pinkerton, whether they're carrying a gun or wearing a suit. Exactly. We'll see you soon. Bye.